Hey, it's Hillary. And here at The Longest Shortest Time, we know that one of the best parts about raising a kid is watching them grow up and become more independent. But sometimes when they're little, they need a little push into that independence. You know what I mean? Like like when we need to get some work done or cook dinner. So we invent these little strategies to help them learn to entertain themselves. And then when our kids get older and they actually want independence, we need some strategies for ourselves to like give our kids the space to make mistakes. Well, here at the show, we are making a book of creative parenting strategies, your creative parenting strategies. It's called Weird Parenting Wins, and we're doing a whole chapter on independence. So we want you to tell us all the surprising ways that you've gotten your kids to discover their independence, all the way from toddlers to teens. It's super easy to submit your win. Just go to weirdparentingwins.com and fill out the form. Speaking of independence, I'm actually on my way out the door for a little vacation. And thanks to the modern technology of microphones and computers, you'll be hearing my voice in the ads today. But your guide in today's show is my trusty producer, Kristen Clark. You guys are in great hands. You're going to love this story. So take it away, Kristen. Thanks, Hillary. The story I want to tell you guys today is about a woman named Frida. It starts off on a Friday when she was about 10 years old. Frida was on the way home after a dentist appointment with her mom. And because women in our community are not allowed to drive, we'd take a taxi. And for some reason, the taxi driver pulled into a trailer park. And I have this crystal clear image of myself in the back seat of the taxi and looking out the window at this girl with pink shorts and thinking, oh, if only that could be me. Those bare legs, they almost looked like liberation in little girl form. You know, in my memory, you know, she has these naked stick feet sticking out of her shorts, which I always wore stockings. From when we were three, we had to cover our legs and wear tights. And the memory of little girls running around in shorts in that trailer park became the setting for so many fantasies in which I was, it turned out, actually exchanged in the hospital and I belonged in the trailer park community. You know, the FBI would come to our door and say, we're sorry to inform you, but this one is actually not yours. We have to return her. And, and, and everyone would understand. In fact, they would have a replacement child. This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Kristen, and as you heard, I'm filling in for Hillary this week. Frida Weisel spent her childhood imagining the world on the other side of that taxicab window, imagining what it might be like to be a mom one day and to give her own child that same freedom. And then, one day, she opened the door, got out, and learned that she was going to have to reimagine everything all over again. You'll see what I mean. Frida was born in a little town in upstate New York. It's called Curious Joel. That's Curious with a K, by the way. I know, whenever I hear that name, I always picture Curious George. But Curious Joel is a real place, and the hats there are black, not yellow. And growing up there, Frida probably wouldn't have heard of Curious George, because she'd never been to a library. Curious Joel is almost like its own world, nestled inside of the world that most of the rest of us live in. 
It's a Satmar Hasidic village. People there follow a rigorous and devout brand of Orthodox Judaism that rejects almost everything from modern or secular life. Frida was number five in a family of 15 kids. She grew up only speaking Yiddish at home, no English. She didn't interact with the opposite sex except for brothers or relatives. She didn't watch TV or movies. And if you think that kind of a childhood might be rough on a spunky little kid like Frida, well, you'd be right. But Frida has a ton of happy memories from kidhood, too. Like lying under the family's massive dining room table and listening to her mom tell stories. You can just imagine so many people eating challah and the crumbs, everything dropping down there like crazy. It was never clean. And I remember lying on the carpet and being pinched by all those crumbs and playing with with her toes that were in thick stockings. Those were the moments Frida felt closest to her mom. There were always half a dozen kids gathered around, but it felt to Frida like those stories were just for her. In fact, most of Frida's happiest memories growing up had to do with seeing her mom happy. For instance, on a Friday night, we would have the Shabbat meal, the Shabbos meal. All of us at the end of the meal might get up and start to get goofy in these impromptu comic performances and the dancing around the table and singing. And my mother would cry. She would cry happy tears. I would sense that she feels her world is complete. And I would think this is ultimately what it's all about. Frida couldn't wait to grow up and take her place at the head of a big, rambunctious family like that. The only problem was she didn't always feel like the community she lived in had a place for her. Girls in Curious Joel were expected to be demure, disciplined. In school, the teachers would always praise the girls that acted like that. And I really wanted to be praised like that also, <laughs> um, but I, it was pretty much impossible. I, what's called in Yiddish sitzfleisch, I, sitting meat. I had no capacity to sit for so many hours and just listen. Frida was vivacious, adventurous, chatty. She was always right in the center of the group telling a funny story. She was in fifth grade the first time she got suspended. My parents were called down to the school for a meeting, and the principal, who had this this man with a gray beard, he said to my parents, she is a ringleader. You know what this is, a ringleader? And I remember then learning the word. I was picked out because I was always a lot of energy, and therefore I was made an example of. As Frida got older, she got better at sitting still. She figured out that the trick was just to keep her mind going at 100 miles per hour. Daydream about jumping around if you can't actually do it. Half of each school day was reserved for secular topics, so the school kept some books from the outside world on hand. Some American history, some short fiction. They were all heavily censored, but Frida lived between those lines of thick black censor marker. Her favorites were the mysteries, especially Sherlock Holmes, anything that felt like an adventure. I would sit in class, and that's when I would fantasize about all sorts of amazing, heroic, glorious, the best possible joys that could come to my life. And they always consisted of me being able to explore the world free of consequences and even being a hero for it. So in some of the settings, I was kidnapped and locked up in a library. And I would read all these books. And no one would be angry. In fact, when they would discover me, I would be very much the hero. 
In eighth grade, a friend of Freda's secretly loaned her an uncensored book in English. It was a thriller about a Jew who takes revenge on Nazis in hiding after World War II. When the teachers found it in her desk, Frida got suspended again. I was out of school for a couple weeks um, at home helping my mother peel a million potatoes. <laughs> and I, so, I felt so lonely. I felt more than anything shamed. It was very much a shaming punishment. That all of my friends didn't say, oh, you're so hilarious. Or all of my friends didn't say, we would also do that. But that I was sitting at home alone. My mother was praying or she was taking care of the baby. And it was quiet between us. I think moments I was really lonely and feeling so angry at myself. So ashamed with myself. The only comfort I could get. The only way I wasn't so hard on myself would be if I would tell myself, this is not going to happen to my child. Because when it was just me, I would think, you're an awful person. Look what you're doing to everyone. But the moment I thought of my own child being punished so severely, I would I would say, I don't care that the neighbors laugh. I don't care that people talk about you. I don't care that the school feels disrupted. You're a child. You have energy. You have curiosity. I'm not going to destroy you or isolate you for it. And it was almost an opportunity for me to allow myself to not be so hard on myself. Motherhood would be my opportunity to right wrongs. Three months after Frida's 18th birthday, she got her very first glimpse of what her own family might look like. I remember being very unhappy about the herringbone suit I was wearing. I remember the awkwardness of being alone with my parents because it rarely happened. And I remember he came in. He was much younger than I imagined a groom would be. I suppose you don't realize how young they are. You just look at your sisters and their husbands are already men. But an 18-year-old boy is not quite a man. And you... Don't make the leap that when you will meet him, he won't be like your husband, sister's husband yet. Frida and this boy had an awkward 20-minute conversation. Everyone retreated into separate rooms to discuss. When they came out, the adults exchanged nods. Everyone said, L'chaim, and that was it. Frida was engaged. I only got to know him after we got married. You know, it was, we went from no contact to suddenly living in one house together and uh, just needing to make decisions like how many cucumbers do we need? I was used to buying like 24 and buying two. And and do we want to buy something like the newspaper, the secular newspaper, which is forbidden, but the news is really interesting. Frida watched it first to figure out what kind of husband she had in her hands. And as it turned out, he had a mischievous side, too. You know, we would get up in the morning, just the two of us, and there were no adults. We would look at each other and be like, well, what's stopping us? We're going to buy a movie. For him, it was like illicit drugs at night. 
we're doing it. We're really guilty. We should really, really pray during the high holidays that we are forgiven. And it's wrong. But oh, this is so fun. Just watching one more episode of Tom Selleck's Magnum P.I. It was heaven to us. It was, we would just sit there with our jaws dropped. It was such a secret. I sat at family events and thought, if anyone knew what me and my husband were up to. Frida got why community leaders might want to put a fence around secular entertainment. She thought consuming too much of it probably made people selfish and hungry for instant gratification. I mean, just look at the number of women Tom Selleck plowed through on that show. But she also figured she had a pretty good grip on what was most important in life. And she desperately wanted to know what was out there. Her husband did too, but his relationship with all of this exploration was different. He wasn't curious in in this in the sense that I was, which was I'm just starting to taste this world that that is so fabulous. For me, it was a curiosity that felt like expressing a very very powerful part of myself. But my husband was a lot more, that's a shameful part of us. He was curious in the sense of, we can do a little bit here and there of trouble. But Frida says he was sweet, supportive. She finally had a best friend to talk about the world with. Each morning, the two of them would walk together to the town center. Frida would head off to her job at an insurance company, and her husband would go to Kalel, a full-time religious school for men. Sometimes when Frida got home in the evening, he would already be there, and he'd have dinner ready. It was starting to feel like the very beginnings of that family she'd always fantasized about. There was just one thing missing. Almost a year to the day after their wedding, she and her husband headed to the hospital, ready to welcome their first child into the world. The baby was two days to the due date, maybe. And we took along everything, the undershirts. It was very much an innocent trip to the hospital. They'd been getting their checkups. Everything seemed fine. And that moment, the nurse checked my stomach with the ultrasound stick and said, no, I remember the sense that It can't happen, and yet the finality. I immediately had this strong sense of, don't let it eat you up. I have this image of the nurse leaving the room so quiet as I see a dark-haired head being taken out. And my mother said, don't look, don't look. It's going to traumatize you. And... It might have. I might not have been ready to look, but you know what followed was that the baby had to be buried, and the Chaver Kedisha, the burial society, the men from the burial society, wanted to save a trip to pick the baby up from the hospital. So they asked if we could bring him home. They wanted us to bring him home in like a bag, in the most dehumanizing way. It was so horrible to, for me. Frida told them absolutely not. She was not going to treat her baby that way. After they got home, Frida's husband told her not to worry. The burial society had taken care of everything, according to tradition. They'd circumcised him, they'd given him a name, and then they'd buried him. I was so angry. 
My husband told me he was named Boaz, which is a biblical figure and is never used. I would never name anyone Boaz. And he said that's because they don't want living children to have names of stillborns. Don't name him then. Who asked you to name him? In traditional Jewish law, babies who don't survive their first month aren't mourned in the same way as other children. It's almost as if they had never lived. And stillbirths are not a topic that really gets talked about a whole lot in the community. So these rituals were an utter shock to Frida. It was so painful to be evermore without any agency. And I really found myself unable to accept that he was named by someone else. That someone else had named him, had decided how to prepare him for burial. That someone else had mistreated, disrespected the baby enough to want us to bring him back in a garbage bag. And and had buried him somewhere in an unmarked grave. I have no idea where. It felt so much like someone taking my baby and and a life never lived and just delegitimizing it even more. Don't make my baby... Don't. Why does he need to be circumcised? I never understood that. I don't want my baby to be an object in your religious skit. It was... When he'd gone from being a child who, who died in some way before being born to being an actor, an, a non-consensual actor in these men's religious right. There was a lot that didn't make sense to Frida in the weeks that followed. Because of menstrual purity laws, she wasn't allowed to have any kind of physical contact with her husband. My husband couldn't even give me a hug. For weeks, he would just... He wouldn't even sit in the bed with me. You know, I would be, I was trying so hard not to feel sorry for myself and wanting so badly his comfort. And he would say, it's not allowed. And that line between me imagining that we could break a rule and him thinking, no, it is a line that we can never pass was really, I guess, the difference between him and me. I I tried so hard to come back from that and not get swallowed up by the resentment that everything I could think of was trying again and becoming a mother again. Almost exactly a year later, Seth, a healthy baby boy, was born. That, that moment when the Seth cried was really, really, really a, a very sweet moment. In, in, in a journey of 11 years of a very sweet kid. It was, it was that moment of all of my troubles are behind me. And now I have a baby and I'm finally here. Of course, it was <laughs> just the beginning in a good way, in a sweet way. When we come back, Frida discovers something even better and more thrilling than Tom Selleck, the internet. Stay with us. <laughs> We're back with Frida Weisel, who is just falling in love with her new baby, Seth. Frida watched with amazement as he figured out how to crawl. Her husband bought a little video camera to capture it, which wasn't exactly allowed, but I mean, hey. The kid was a miracle of God. 
And it was right around this time when Frida stumbled into the world of blogging. You know, I I guess it sh- it's not unexpected. We had a computer. We slowly had worked ourselves in up to more and more, or down, whichever way you want to look at it, to more and more allowances. And at some point, our allowances were that we had internet on our computer. And I often, when I was bored, I would Google Hasidim. Frida says this gave her a window. It was sometimes easier to get a sense of what was going on in the world when it was communicated in relation to her own community. But she'd run into these articles in places like the New York Post, stories about Hasidic wife-swapping and a secret underground gay scene. It was always written in this really gross, sensationalized way. I felt so frustrated because I'd always felt like people look at us like a curiosity and assume that we have no agency, no minds of our own. One Friday, Frida stumbled across this blog post that felt really ugly. It claimed that there were Hasidic men raping women in their community to keep them in line. The blogger almost described us as objects of rabbinic oppression. And I felt like, are you serious? I'm not some puppet. We are people. We are we are complex. We are diverse. That made me want to speak up and say something. And my husband said, go for it. By this point, Frida was already writing little comments on articles they read online. She and her husband even had online pseudonyms. Frida was Spitzel, and her husband was Yoilish. They'd read an article together in the Times-Herald Record, get fired up, figure out what they wanted to say. And then, because Frida's English was better, she'd write up a comment for both of them. Usually, that was it. The comment would immediately get buried by dozens of others, and the two of them would move on. But this wasn't a newspaper article. It was a blog, where if you comment on a thread, it can start a whole conversation. And I didn't know there was a whole blogs fair of people who would start to comment and engage me. And it opened me to this whole world of, it felt like, of people who understood my Yiddish references, who knew where I was coming from, who I imagined were my neighbors, were my my friends, my siblings, who were all on the internet reading what I was saying. And it made me feel like, for the first time, it wasn't about me being this snot-nosed kid. There were people who got it. There were people who were like, right on Spitzel. And I, th- I, I thought the most explosive thing had happened somewhere in me. Frida started a blog of her own under the pen name Spitzel Strimpkind, which I think we can agree is a marvelous name. Spitzel Strimkin's mission was to defend the Satmar community and to humanize the people in it. Frida's husband was her first and biggest fan. He even commented on her first blog post. Hi, baby. It's just so you. I knew you'd end up testing the waters. Water is. That's a conjunction with an S in blogs fair. Turns out I am starting to think this has some real potential. There are some issues you should air. I promise I'll comment. I'm eager to read all you have to say. I'm glad you finally agreed that most of the internet stuff on Satmar are so exaggerated. Hug and a kiss, my love, and some more gestures I can't name. Keep it coming. This is so embarrassing, but this this totally captures his chutzpah, his audacity, his cheerleaderness, like, you go for it, and then sprinkling in a little bit of his own ideas. These blog posts are all still up online, and they're wonderful. 
They're full of humor and all of these amazing Yiddish idioms. Like, Spitzel writes that by living her secret double life online, she's figured out a way to dance at both weddings with one tuchus. As you read them over the months, you witness Spitzel Strimkind, a.k.a. Frida, getting more and more personal, working things through. She complains about the gossipy ladies, the yentas in the community. She writes about how her husband—she called them Yoilish in the blog, too— wanted more kids, and how she wasn't quite ready yet. And then there's the hair. In Frida's community, married women shave their heads and wear wigs. One of Spitzel's posts reads like an elegy to the hair she'll never grow back. The writing is honest and vulnerable, and Frida gathered a following. But not all of those followers were fans. This was one of my first comments. It's a woman from the Hasidic community. And she wrote, "Hope, hope you will do better than this piece of crap. Jeez. Yeah, and I answered, um, constructive criticism tends to be more specific. I was like, bring it on. I was so excited. It was so awesome. And it was all a very rosy scenario for five minutes, just about, until I was totally out of control, obsessed with this blog, commenting 24-7, and being so consumed by the time and the distraction that I didn't realize how undoable it would be. This wasn't just that I was distracted now from my work and my home life, but also that I was undoing a lot of ways of thinking and of interacting with my ideas. Frida would comment on a post about gay Hasidic men and say, that doesn't happen in the Satmar community. And someone would write back, actually, I had my first gay relationship before I left the Satmars. She'd argue with secular commentators about creationism, but in order to keep up with the conversation, she had to read up on evolution. Someone would mention Occam's razor in an argument, and she'd have to Google, what is Occam's razor? At one point, she asked one of her new online friends for book recommendations, and he told her about a book by Bill Bryson, A Brief History of Nearly Everything. I wanted to dance out of my seats, like you really tried to understand something. A history of so many more years, millions of years, and so many events. This amazing, fantastic, fabulous thing that is life. And it makes you at once feel so special for having survived and become you, but also so inconsequential. It was so much of a... a cerebral change that I thought it was harmless. But you know, it changed everything. Seeing the world from a perspective that is not God-human-centric, especially Hasidic-centric, made something like shaving my head, which was necessary in the community, feel so ridiculous. It was impossible. And you know, that kind of translated into things at home that I was more trouble. I was not just begging him, please understand. I was saying... This is crazy. I think this is crazy. And so Frida stopped shaving her head for weeks at a time. Her hair started to stick out of her turban. And that's where things actually started getting dangerous. Frida was no longer just some anonymous blogger. People in the community could see her. To her husband, this wasn't just a fun hobby anymore. So it led to terrible wars, especially because in our community, there are so many ways in which you can be punished. As Seth was getting older, he needed to go to school. And if he needed to go to school, if I didn't shave my head, I needed my husband to lie for me or to cover 
for me, and he wouldn't. So the, we were locked in that stalemate in which I saw absolutely no way out. I didn't want to fight these wars with myself, but my husband was very angry. He was very upset. I had betrayed him in a way as if, you know, take the drug analogy. It was as if we had played around with some drugs and it was clear to us that we we're going to be responsible about it. And I had passed that line of responsibility and I was starting to self-destruct. That's how he felt helpless and even angrier at himself and at me because he had allowed it. But the day that really lit the fuse was the day Frida got a call from the rabbi's wife. And the moment the phone rang, I was bathing Seth. I knew this is trouble because these women don't meddle in your life unless they, you know, are sent or there's trouble. And she, she invited me into her huge dining room, extremely lavish. I was sitting there with my coat and Seth in the bunting or whatever he was in. And she said, she, oh, she was dripping honey. She said, Friday, how are you doing? Your baby looks lovely. And with all that sugar dripping out of her mouth, oh boy, do I not trust that. And she said, look, we know what's going on. And she says it in the most happy tone ever. If you want to destroy yourself, we can help it. We can't stop you. It's your prerogative. It's your choice. But of course, you understand that we can't let you do it to your child. This was not an idle threat. One of Frida's classmates from school, Giddy Grunwald, had recently left Curious Joel with her daughter. The community was pissed. Giddy's daughter was snatched off of a playground one day and brought back to Giddy's ex-husband. People in town banded together to pay for his lawyers. Giddy lost custody. So, if you'll continue to destroy yourself, you do understand that you're going to lose your child. I have never felt so angry in my life as that moment. I wanted to jump down her throat. How dare you? And when I went home, I screamed at my husband. Like, I never, I never experienced anger like that. The more anxious Frida got, she says, the more her husband felt like he needed to be the upstanding, in-control moral character in the story. He had a plan he thought would calm this whole situation down. More children. I think he knew, and it happens often, that having more kids would just get me busy enough and... It would, it would necessarily force me to stop being trouble. You just don't have the time. You don't have the opportunity to constantly play with the rules if you're just trying to be there for your kids. My personal narrative has always been so much about what I can't have for myself, I'll at least do for my kids. This seemed like the craziest thing, heaping it instability and dysfunction on other children, it, it was insane. Frida begged her husband to try couples counseling, and he finally agreed. And then he made all of the arrangements and found the counselor, a rabbi. And this counselor took her husband's side. The rabbi said he understood the situation perfectly. And the situation was that I was confused and I needed more love. And no matter what I would say, he decided that not having children in the meantime while the marriage is fixed is unheard of. It felt so irresponsible. It was just 
mind-numbing to me that someone could say, we need to take your child away because you're destroying yourself, and then say, but then have another baby. Are you kidding me? Who's destroying themselves? On the car ride home after that session, Frida's mind was racing. No one is going to save me from the situation. In fact, they're going to try to get me to get pregnant and become even less capable of defending myself. And I thought to myself, you have to just get on your own feet. And I, it just was a moment of taking the burden on. I got an IUD. And that's when I started to do a lot of things that would eventually help me envision moving out of the community and being on my own. My husband um, was the one who said he'll move out. I cried so much. I so didn't want him to go. I missed him. I, you know, he was a best friend. But he, the moment he walked out, I didn't hear from him again. That was it. He walked through that door and goodbye. I see him here and there, like when he picks up Seth. He doesn't see Seth so much, but when he does, he never talks to me or greets me or anything. Almost like a phantom marriage. Like, who was that man in my memory? I have no idea. Frida's husband had left her. Frida wanted to run away too, but she couldn't. The threat from the rabbi's wife about taking her son away felt all too real. Often at work, Frida would feel panicked that Seth might not be at the babysitter's when she went to pick him up. She'd have to breathe into a paper bag to calm herself down. Frida kept her ear to the ground, waiting for gossip in the community to die down, waiting for signs that her ex-husband was moving on with his life, that the town wasn't going to turn against her. Meanwhile, she saved up and bought a car that she kept in a Walmart parking lot. She started scouting out apartments in the town of Muncie, about 30 miles away. And after a year of waiting, on the day of her ex-husband's wedding to his new wife, Frida finally felt safe enough to take Seth and leave Curious Joel. And I took him, I picked him up, I think from school, from his yeshiva, and I took him to the Walmart parking lot, and I took him to the car, and he asked who's going to drive— and I said, I am. And he said, Mama can drive? And I said, of course. Frida buckled Seth into his car seat and told him she'd found a new home for them to live in. In a minute, Frida gives Seth the life she dreamed of and discovers he needs something else. Don't go away. Say advertisement. Advertisement. Good job. Hi, I'm Mindy Thomas, co-host of NPR's Wow in the World, NPR's first podcast for kids. Every week, my buddy Guy Raz and I take wild adventures into the coolest new scientific discoveries, and we want to invite you to come along for the ride. Find Wow in the World on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're back with Frida Weisel. Frida and Seth's new home was in a mildewy, bee-infested apartment in Muncie, New York. In other words, it was heaven. They put up patio lights. Seth ran around the backyard, yelping with delight. They'd go on expeditions together in their car. 
Sus' dad would pick him up for a visit every other weekend, which gave Frida time to regroup in her own way. She bought herself a pair of colorful sneakers and spent hours biking. One time she pulled over into a gas station and bought a whole tub of ice cream and sat there near a playground, eating out of it with a plastic spoon. It was like she was finally getting to be her own version of the little girl in the pink shorts. But she was even more excited about what she'd be able to give Seth. I thought moving would be the greatest thing for Seth. I I really, really felt like we would take in the world with the greatest appetite. And I would read to him and sing to him, and I would teach him concepts, and that he would go to schools that would open him to the world in an even greater way. But most of all, that he would be free to be himself. Not that Frida wanted to leave her past behind. She wanted Seth to feel and celebrate his Judaism. The neighborhood she'd chosen in Muncie had a large modern Orthodox community. It was a lot less isolated than the Satmar enclave they'd come from, but still very devout. The women covered their hair, people kept kosher, and they didn't drive on Shabbat. When I left the community, I imagined that I would find this perfect balance of retaining all the knowledge and traditions of the religion, just no limitation on curiosity, no restrictions on our intellectual integrity. So I would imagine that we would go to the library and stock up in a million books and then light candles Friday night and have a meal and then veg out on the couch and read those books. That was my utopia, a mix of singing Hasidic songs uh, and and reading just any kind of literature. Um, I was sure that my son would speak Yiddish. It was his first language. I was sure that he would appreciate the the serenity, the predictability, the comfort in tradition. And I also thought it would it would mean that I don't have to give up so much. But as Frida and Seth became a little less observant, it became more difficult for his father to host Seth on visits. His dad started canceling overnights until, after the first year, Frida was basically a full-time single parent. And gradually, Frida began to realize her Muncie plan was sort of backfiring. The neighborhood we were in were traditional families, and all of the families were two parents and multiple children. And I think that was particularly disheartening for me to feel more marginalized. Just being myself with a child who was still speaking Yiddish and trying to encourage him to play when he felt really intimidated by this cultural difference. So Shabbos became really long. Every Friday, Frida and Seth would visit a neighbor's home for dinner, but it was awkward, hard to connect. And without family around, they'd often sit inside all day Saturday, feeling bored and isolated. Frida worried that Seth would start to think of the tradition she was trying to preserve as a form of punishment. So, as you might expect, she decided to bend the rules a little bit. She'd take Seth on these Shabbos outings to museums and baseball games, even a water park. She started parking her car on the outskirts of town again so they could drive into the city on adventures without being noticed. It was all a sneaking out operation, pretending we're going to the synagogue and then running into the car and getting keys out of secret pockets. It became pretty clear to him that this is some sort of heist. To Frida, this time with Seth felt special, almost like they were finding their own way of making Shabbat meaningful. But she could see that Seth was getting anxious. She'd catch him ducking down in the passenger seat on their Saturday outings so no one would see him riding in a car. He'd hiss, Mom, they can see us. 
Frida had loosened up on kosher rules in the kitchen, but Seth started asking to keep kosher again. He'd happily spend the whole day without his yarmulke, but when it was time to go to the park to play with his friends, all of a sudden he'd want to wear it. One Saturday, after a visit to Seth's dad's house, Seth turned to Frida in the middle of a baseball game and asked, Mom, are we goys? This was hard for Frida to hear. She was only just beginning to find a Jewish identity that felt authentic to her. And here was her son, wondering if they were even Jewish at all. It all came to a head one rainy Saturday in the Upper West Side. Frida and Seth had just spent all day with the dinosaurs and the gemstones at the Museum of Natural History. They'd stopped at a deli and were eating these giant meatballs off of a fork. And we're walking and we're eating, and this gentleman who looks like your ordinary New Yorky Manhattan Jew with a square glasses comes up and says, excuse me, do you, would you mind to be a tenth to minion? At first, Frida couldn't process what he was asking. Traditionally, a minion is a group of 10 Jewish men. The synagogue was trying to have a prayer service and they needed a quorum. In the world Frida had grown up in, a woman would never be asked to do this. She wouldn't have counted. Even Seth, as an eight-year-old, would have been a more viable option. And Frida couldn't even figure out how this man knew they were Jewish, until she realized he saw Seth's yarmulke. But he, he wasn't asking my son. He asked me. And I looked at my son, and my son was like, maybe. And I said, we'll do it. The man ushered them down into the basement, where a small group of people had gathered in their nice Shabbos clothes. Seth sat in the front row and waved as Frida was called up to make her very first aliyah, her first reading from the Torah. It was so sweet and unexpected after having slipped into this car as if now we are Shabbos and now we are not. Now we are Jewish and now we are not. But here we were. I was wearing pants. I was, my hair was frizzy and curly from the rain. I felt so much like I, I hadn't even put up my spiel. I hadn't pretended to be this saintly person And as I was, the way I was was fine. That's the way I was invited. And and we left in such a quiet way. We had such a sweet conversation on the way home. I think I was just like, would you believe it? That way. Would you believe what just happened? Did you see? I I could read from the Torah. Did you see that? It was mostly a monologue. It was mostly me, um... It was, it was a lot about me, my own journey. You know, it's funny because I, I'd always wanted to show him that there are ways, honest ways, to be religious. It felt very much like I should stop forcing it. It happens if, if you are yourself. Frida had achieved something huge that she wasn't even expecting. And not too long after that, she realized it was time to leave Muncie. They rented a sweet little white colonial house in a secular town. They got a dog whose favorite pastime is eating all the stuffing out of comforters. No, no, no. Snoopy! (laughs) Finally, Frida felt she understood how she could be the Jewish woman she wanted to be and truly give her son the freedom to be curious and explore that she had craved when she was his age. My my parenting philosophy was the antithesis of what I grew up in, which was parents know best and children know nothing, and the parents decide. My father would 
always. He would wear his long nightgown and, you know, with his red beard, he would be sitting on his bed and one of the children would say, but why? And he would say, you can never understand until you're an adult and you never had any say in the process of any decisions being made for you. So to me, it felt like writing that wrong was being a very um, careful listener to my child. So if my son said, I don't do homework, that was something very serious to consider. That was his position. Um, and, and, you know, when he was a little kid and we still lived in Muncie, it was fine because he wasn't yet a great order and, and a great speech maker. And he was still verbally my inferior. By the time he got a little older and as we lost more and more of the religious structure, everything became a battle. It, getting him to do homework, getting him to be curious about things, getting him to be engaged with, with, with responsibilities, with the world around him. It was only planets versus zombies and, and whatever virtual reality. Seth was slipping in school. He could never finish his homework. And he was incredibly anxious. He started having these night terrors. He'd wake up panicked that an asteroid was about to hit the Earth. He went through a period in which he was impossible. He was so explosive. He was so difficult. And most of all, he was so unhappy. He was like, if I felt like he was going to spiral into a dark place that I never imagined. He would come home from school. If he had to do his homework, something went wrong. He exploded. He would walk off. He would just get out of the house and walk off. My whole theory of leaving to give him a better life was a little bit falling apart. I realized that I can give him everything I wanted, everything this snot-nosed girl in the community was dying for, and he's not going to thrive. For a moment, I was left with a crushing self-doubt. Did, did I, was I wrong? In trying to give Seth more freedom... Frida realized she'd actually removed too much of the structure, including things Seth needed to find his way. Frida started putting her foot down. She put a hard limit on video games and YouTube. She'd sit next to Seth, racking up plus signs with a marker as he did his homework. At first, it was an all-out war. But once Seth had gotten a taste of accomplishment, Frida says it was like flipping a switch. Not only was her son smart and curious, it turned out he had a whole world of interests all on his own. He loved art and science and technology. He got really into origami, and he started building contraptions out of every random material he could find. You know, I used to think, will he be religious or will he not? And as he's gotten older, he's 11 now, I think that's, that's not the question. The question is so much more, what is he interested in? Making my dreams come true on him was kind of, it was, it was sweet, but it was wrong. I've come to accept that what I give Seth, what I can give him more than giving him the freedom from the Hasidic expectations, is to give him the freedom from my own expectations. And to say, if you're happy, if you're thriving, if you're curious and you're learning, then that's enough. This last year, Frida started homeschooling Seth. They've been working on coding projects and robotics. They even built a computer together that Seth does his homework on. Frida's getting to know her son, 
finding out what his journey in life is going to look like. It's work for now. We'll see what happens later. We're just about to enter the teenage years, and I swear I'm going to rewrite this whole parenting journey. And I'm, I'm never... You see, this is something that where I come from, they would say, oh, you're so confused. Look at you. You were believing X, and now you believe Y. But actually... This is what I try to teach Seth all the time. There's something so wonderful about having ideas and experience challenging it. It's nothing like parenting to force you to relinquish such strong core ideas and say, you know what, I'm rethinking that and I'm going to maybe open myself to think something new, which I think is a very brave thing to do. So... Fingers crossed, this is like the end of the story. (laughs) (laughs) It never is. It never is. It never is. No. No. Frida's finding her own way, too. She's working on her master's degree at Sarah Lawrence, and she founded her own company called Visit Hasidim. She spends her days guiding tours through Hasidic Williamsburg in Brooklyn, helping people understand things they might find difficult or perplexing about the tradition in which she grew up and also sharing all of the things that she still finds really beautiful about it. We'll link to Visit Hasidim and to some of Frida's funny, brilliant writing on our website, longestshortesttime.com. And while you're there, we want to hear from you. What were the ideas about parenthood that you had to flip totally upside down after having kids? Let us know in the comments for this episode. That's episode 136. This podcast is produced by Hillary Frank, who is celebrating her birthday as I'm recording this. Happy birthday, Hillary. She gets help from Kristen Clark, that's me, and Abigail Keel. We are edited by Peter Clowney. Our engineers are Pete Karam and Jared O'Connell. Our technical director is the Reverend John Delore. Our music is performed by hotmoms.gov and directed by Allison Layton Brown. We used additional music this week from Johnny Ripper and the Batteries Duo. We get editorial support from Anne-Marie Baldonado, Antonia Akatunde, and Rika Murthy. Hillary's back next week, you guys. She's got a story of a five-year-old who's on a mission to figure out the strange rules of an exotic foreign culture. And by that, I mean an American kindergarten classroom. He's like, what's a personal bubble? And Ella's like, you know, a personal bubble. It's your personal bubble. It's your space. And, like, Joseph was looking at him as if he had no idea what he was talking about. Do not miss this episode. Subscribe to The Longest Shortest Time in Stitcher or Apple Podcasts or wherever you like. And, as always, here at The Longest Shortest Time, we are looking for your stories. Right now, we'd especially love to hear about family feuds that you could use our help to settle. Like, has your 15-year-old just discovered politics and now he can't shut his pie hole at Thanksgiving? Are your twin toddlers at war over whether it's raining versus sprinkling outside? We're not sure if we can help you, but damn it, we're going to try. Go to longestshortesttime.com, hit the participate tab, and submit your story. Stitcher. I say it. Okay. Dot.